Hi, this is Tony Campolo and Shane Claiborne. The name of this show is From Across the Pond. We give it that name because we put the show together here in the United States, specifically just outside of Philadelphia. We work out of the uh, studios of Cabrini University, which is across the street from Eastern University, where I've been a faculty member and a student for more than 50 years. It's home to me. So if you're looking for a good, solid uh, Christian school, uh, look at Eastern, Eastern University. Well, we, uh, we have a guest today. Yeah. Uh, would you tell us about Angela? I would. I will. Uh, Reverend Angela Danker is our guest. She's uh, a regular at Red Letter Christians, writing on our blog and coming to different events that we've done together. She, this is great, Tony. She's a former sports writer turned Lutheran pastor and also a writer and a speaker. She's a mom of two boys based out of Minneapolis. She's written for like Sports Illustrated and the Washington Post, a bunch of other stuff. But the, her new book is what we're really going to talk about. It's Red State Christians. Meet the voters who elected Donald Trump. Yeah, red states. Red uh, state Christians. Yeah, uh, yeah. People in the United Kingdom may not know that when we talk about the political scene, we designate certain states as blue states. They basically vote for the Democratic candidate. Red states tend to be highly Republican. And then there are states like Pennsylvania, where we are, that are purple, right? They're yeah, we don't know who we are. Go but, ahead. But, you know, when we were over in the UK, Tony and I just came back from over there. Um, it, what, what's interesting is um, almost every night, uh, everybody's asking about Donald Trump, you know, yeah. and they're asking how do Christians continue to defend this. And we've often said that that Donald Trump is a symptom of something bigger, and we can see iterations of fear and white supremacy yeah. and all this all over the world right yeah. now. And and uh, so the conversation will be really pertinent no matter where you're listening yeah. from. So, Angela, thanks for joining us and thanks for writing this great book. Okay. You want to get it going here, Shane, with a question or two? Yeah. Tell us, tell us, uh, uh, well, I mean, first tell us just a little bit of your background because this isn't the first thing that you've written, Angela. You've written, uh, you, you blog, you write all kinds of great articles. Um, give us a little history and, and why you felt like this is the fire in your bones right now. Yeah, so I um, was serving as a pastor at a really large um, evangelical-style Lutheran church in Orange County, California. Uh, so for our listeners in the UK and in Europe, um, a lot of people think of Southern California as sort of very liberal, very sort of glitzy, lots of wealth. Um and that is true of Orange County, but Orange County is also sort of a red, more conservative part of California. Um, so while I was there, I was pastoring, you know, this very conservative church. Uh, we had a male senior pastor, um, and I was there during the 2016 election and just kind of saw um, in a way that was really unique to any presidential election that I'd witnessed before. Um the reverberations of the election of Donald Trump in churches, and particularly in my church in this very conservative community. Um, so that was sort of the birth of Red State Christians. Um, I ended up leaving that church in early 2017 um, to move back to the Midwest, where my family is from. Um, my husband had an engineering job in the Midwest, and I had pitched a book called, um, you guys are going to like this, um, Bibles and Boob Jobs. <laughs> um, <laughs> focusing on uh, Orange County Christians. And um, the publisher that I spoke to said, you know, we're really interested in that, but we 
want to expand the scope of this book to really look at all the different sort of subcultures and threads and themes of Christians voting for Trump, because it's a really diverse group. Um, yes. So that the, was the beginning of Red State Christians. As yeah. uh, Shane was saying, uh, when we were over in the UK, and I got this in Germany as well, uh, they want to know how can people yeah. who are evangelicals be so in love with Donald Trump? Uh, what was it, 82% of white evangelicals voted for Donald Trump. And yep. There you were yeah. down in Southern and California. So you, you studied this. Tell us a little bit yeah. of, of what you've, you've found, because we, we've said, you know, if it does feel like Donald Trump didn't change evangelicalism. He just revealed it. Um, but what it surfaced are some really alarming things, right, Angela? Yes. Um, I would say, that, so when I look at the research that I uncovered, I kind of um, like to use four words. Uh, the words are surprise opportunity, warning, and hope. Um, so when you're looking at the motivations, um, I do hope people see surprises that evangelicals in the United States are not a monolith. Um, and particularly, you know, evangelicals of color often get for forgotten, and they have been some of the most resistant to Donald Trump. Um, but among those evangelicals who support Donald Trump, I would say the most troubling trend that I uncovered that I was not aware of the scope of this problem and the entrenchment of it in so many American churches um, is this phenomenon called Christian nationalism, where people, um, particularly in Southern Baptist churches and across the American South, um, people have been taught so strongly to embrace the flag, to almost worship the flag, to support a strong country. And so when Trump was able to exploit that by saying, we want to make America great again, it was more important to these Christian voters to have a strong country than it was to look at the tenets of Jesus and what Jesus asked us to do as Christians. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, when you said the surprise, too, I, I saw uh, one of the studies that what, what gets overlooked is the resistance. And this was showing particularly that African-American women were almost the exact opposite of white evangelicals. I mean, it was overwhelmingly like 80 percent or 70 something percent that were uh, uh, you know, not for Donald Trump. And so um, it, it's raised a lot of questions about the future of Christianity, too, because we see a lot of people that are that are rejecting Christianity, the sort of ex-evangelicals, the empty the pews type folk that are saying mm -hmm. we're done with Christianity. But really, as, as they describe it, they're done with a certain fundamentalism and a, and a and really what you've named so well christian nationalism that has camouflaged itself as a, a legitimate version of christianity so um yeah, where we, else do you see that so you said the surprise tell us a little bit more about the um the other reasons the opportunity warning and hope that that <laughs> kind of you know gravit made, made people uh magnetized by donald trump well before you go on is there anything more you need to say about the surprise yeah i mean i think first of all that um surprise for those of us who are christians um we christians had to be open to the surprise of jesus resurrection and for american news consumer consumers um, and we see this around the globe as well. Um, it's really hard to be surprised by a news story anymore because you pretty much look at, okay, where's the news source? Is it CNN? Is it Fox News? And then you can pretty much expect what the coverage is going to look like. Um, and Shane points <laughs> out that what's really been undercovered in a lot of cases, um, especially by media who is kind of centered on the coast, centered in um, population centers, 
they miss the stories of resistance and the stories of nuance um, happening in red states and counties all over the country. And the two of you have been working in these trenches, in these places for years, so you know this well. Um, and so that was part of the surprise in my hope that, I, or in my book, um, that I wanted to bring out. You know, I told stories of uh, Christian pastors, Southern Baptist pastors, uh, Hispanic pastors who were working at the United States-Mexico border in El Paso. Um, mm. And of course, recently there was a mass shooting in El Paso and so just for me, that was heartbreaking because El Paso is really a place where you see um, Border Patrol members, DACA recipients, people who are undocumented, um, military members, you know, they all have to find common ground and they all have to see each other's humanity. And so despite their different political opinions, um, you really see people putting that aside in a lot of these places to to take care of one another, to work together, and to find common ground. And so that was something really hopeful I discovered. Um, I also discovered that a little bit in some of my time in Appalachia and seeing sort of some of the younger generations um, wanting to have conversations that felt fresher and people's ability to love in particular, you know, even if they have views that were maybe racist or views that were maybe sort of homophobic in general, in particular, um, people have a great capacity to love one another and to create relationships, and that gave me a lot of hope. Mm. Well, that is good, and that, that is uh, hopeful. Uh, I guess what I hear you saying is, uh, on the macro level, uh, when you're dealing with mm-hmm. big issues and uh, policies uh, uh, that are discussed on television, you get uh, a polarization, but when there's specific mm-hmm. needs in a neighborhood, people on the left, people on the right, Democrats, Republicans, uh, people uh, of different political ideologies uh, tend to respond uh, in love uh, on the micro level. So they'll set up a program to feed the hungry, to take care of Mm -hmm. children who need tutoring and uh, are coming together on issues uh, that are not uh, the macro issues, but where the rubber hits the road. Are we going to live out our Christian faith in personal relationships and can we come together and start programs that address the needs of the homeless, uh, the problems of people who don't have legal representation, the problems of people uh, who are ha- have families that are falling apart. Is that what I hear you saying? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I saw that. I really traveled all over the country for this book, and I really saw that almost everywhere I went. Um, now, the depressing side of that and the negative side of that is what I found was that often people were having to do that work um, at odds with the leaders of their denomination, at odds with the leader, you know, people who are seen as Christian leaders, political leaders um, in the country. And so one of the main notes that I found in my research as well, and you guys kind of touched on this earlier, is that even though Trump is sort of the object of so much derision and so much interest, um, the people that concerned me the most in the book um, were Christian leaders who had really lost their way, pastors Mm. who had become more motivated by power and money and control um, rather than following the life of Jesus. And those are the people um, who sort of paved the way for Trump. And Trump in some ways is sort of a, you know, unwitting accomplice in a little bit. Yeah. (laughs) So let's let's pause for just a second to to welcome everybody listening in. Uh, This is Shane Claiborne and Tony Campolo. 
Our show is across the pond. We're over here outside of Philadelphia talking about Jesus and stuff that matters. Uh, and this week we've got a great uh, guest, Reverend Angela Danker. She's a former sports writer that is now a Lutheran pastor, also a speaker and writer. And she's just come out with this book, Red State Christians, Meet the Voters Who Elected Donald Trump. And we're very aware that many of the, uh, like growing up in the Bible Belt for myself, the same people that led me to Jesus have led us to Donald Trump. And we look at the state of white evangelicalism, particular in our country, and uh, there's a lot of really concerning things. But what I like about you, Angela, is you've, you've also been talking about the hope and, and even what we, you know, the warning lights that this current era should signal for us um, I mean, we see a lot of people leaving the church right now because they become very disenchanted with uh, the state of Christianity. And, and what's at stake is really much bigger than Donald Trump. I think the, the credibility and the, the moral integrity of, of the, the church as kind of the conscience of our nation is, is part of what we're talking about. So tell us some of the other things that— Well, before uh, you move uh, on, uh, you said something, Angela, that I think uh, you could help us uh, to flesh out a little bit. You found among Christian leaders that they had been seduced by values that are antithetical to Jesus. Mm -hmm. uh, namely, they seem to be in love with wealth and power and prestige. And uh, in this sense, Donald Trump becomes a symbol in a sense of uh, what they are all about. They want to become powerful, wealthy, uh, influential people. And uh, mm -hmm. they claim to be a follower of a Jesus who emptied himself of power and prestige, and took upon himself the form of a servant. Uh, could you spell out what you saw, leaders? Could you give me a couple of specifics without naming names? Sure. Um, I really saw, and this is why it's interesting that this book began in Orange County, because Orange County, um, while being home to some of, the, of, of America's greatest concentration of wealth, is also home to some of America's largest megachurches. Um, so it was in Orange County, uh, when you saw places like the Crystal Cathedral, um, you saw places that really embraced um, money and power. Um, you started to have pastors who were making a lot of money, pastors who were driving private jets, um, pastors who were, you know, wearing several hundred dollars worth in sneakers. Um, and I think that that Southern California Christianity really began to have an influence across the country. And so you saw evangelicals who had once sort of shunned popular culture, who had sort of um, walled themselves off from the rest of America, started to sort of open themselves up to, okay, well, we can have lights and worship. Okay, we can have a, you know, expensive sound system. Okay, we can have a pastor who gets paid a lot of money. Um, and you saw that start to spread to churches across America. And I think that that really opened the hearts of conservative Christians to somebody like Donald Trump. Um, but then everything started to get really muddy. And it really goes to the heart of the gospel in that you saw um, pastors, leaders of Christian universities um, being willing to excuse a lot of the moral failings of Trump, you know, his treatment of women, his three marriages, um, his willingness to exploit other people for money, they were willing to excuse all of that because they were so hungry for a power that they hadn't had for a long time in American politics. Um, they were so hungry for Supreme Court seats. And the waters really got muddied, and there really weren't very many evangelical voices 
saying, but wait, what did Jesus say? What did the gospel say? And it was really a one-track mind focused on power for a lot of uh, these voters. Yeah, and it's nothing new to uh, selling Jesus out for a few pieces of silver. I mean, we've heard that story before, but, uh, you know, I wonder if you— we've talked quite a bit, Tony and I, about all the 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 theology that that gets convoluted in all this. I mean, it's one thing to try to defend the morality of Donald Trump. It's another thing when, you know, as this was happening, um, he's been asked a few times about his his uh, faith. And, you know, have you asked God for forgiveness? And he says, I've lived a good life. And that's really just not the relationship I have with God is one of asking forgiveness, you know. And so you kind of look like, wow, (laughs) these are some core tenets of evangelicalism of how we think of our relationship with God as broken sinners in need of a savior. And when you say I'm the chosen one and you kind of take the seat of the savior, (laughs) you kind of end up uh, with this collision. So I I wonder if you saw anything. Just stop there just for a moment and say, hey, you people out there in the United Kingdom, are you listening? He actually referred himself to himself Mm -hmm. as I am the one who has been chosen. Whoa. Yeah, and he, re, you know, he, he circulated a quote of someone else that said yeah. he's the and, king, and, king and, of, you know, the king of uh, Israel and the king of the Jews and the second coming of God. Yeah, well, the, <laughs> well, the interesting thing is that he got this language from evangelical preachers. There's that famous uh, mm-hmm. photograph that has appeared all over the United States mm-hmm. of these evangelical leaders. And it's not just white people. They're African-American, Hispanic, with their hands on him in the Oval right, Office right. and uh, letting it be known that he is the anointed of God. And uh, so all of these values, which are antithetical to Jesus, power, wealth, prestige, all of these values uh, are suddenly legitimated uh, by the leaders of the church. Yeah. So, Andrew, what, what, to tell, help us unpack that a little bit. Well, and I think when you try to have this kind of conversation with people who have been um, convinced in their support of Donald Trump, a lot of it actually goes back to media and the fact that Americans on the right and left are consuming different media. Uh, so we're talking about these instances, um, I think it was on C-SPAN, where Trump has said, well, I, I have never needed to ask for forgiveness, um, highly publicized you know, tweets. Um, and then oftentimes the people that I spoke to across America were consuming very different media. And so there's, there's even sort of these myths um, and stories about that Trump has gone back to Scotland, which maybe will interest our UK readers. And there's this idea that he's gone back there on some sort of religious pilgrimage to uncover the Presbyterianism and the faith of his, um, of his mother's side and his ancestors there. There's stories about uh, there's a broadcast that where Trump is sharing his conversion from pro-choice to pro-life and talking about um, these changes. And so people are kind of grasping at any kind of straws that will give them this sense. Um, Trump will talk about that he's praying. And so for some people, especially people in rural America, those images were really powerful. And because they weren't watching CNN, they weren't um, consuming mainstream media, they simply missed a lot of the other stories that have been important talking points um, and mainstream media. Mm. Another point that I will say, too, is that um, so that's sort of the maybe more naive view. Uh, The more cynical view for a lot of pastors and leaders 
is this King Cyrus idea that I heard many, many times yeah. that Trump is a righteous leader who is not a Christian, not a follower of God, but someone who has nonetheless been anointed by God. Um, and the it's, chosen. you know, somewhat, somewhat convenient theory, but... <laughs> yeah, and just as King David killed someone, uh, you know, kings do terrible things, but God uses them as this idea, right? So the, and the idea yeah. is, is, it can also be kind of apocalyptic, can it? That, that you know, yes. this is yes. to expedite the second coming of yeah. Jesus, that everything's going to get worse before it gets better. So... Yeah. Yeah. Say a little more about that. Before you go on, just so our audience knows what we're talking about, Cyrus was this king who was responsible for delivering the Jews from uh, captivity, from slavery, and bringing them back to the promised land. He was not a particularly good man, but he was used by God as the, and he's actually referred to in Scripture as a Messiah who has delivered uh, the people of God to the Holy Land back to where they came from. And so uh, when they identify uh, Trump with Cyrus, that's what lies behind it. Yes. Well, and I think at the root of all this, as we're talking, um, part of the problem, too, is just this real lack of biblical literacy among American Christians. Um, And so there's sort of these biblical stories that are used, but only half the story is used. (laughs) You know, people will use the story of King David, but not tell the story of the prophet Nathan coming and confronting David and making him see his sin and David's great repentance. Um, Mm. The story of King Cyrus, you know, it's it's not told as a full story. Um, And even in American Evangelicals' embrace of Israel— there is this apocalyptic sense. There is this sense of the second coming. Um, what never really gets talked about is this uneasiness that, yes, American evangelicals may support the state of Israel, but they fundamentally also believe that Jews are wrong and that yeah. they're going to be either converted or destroyed. And so this lack of biblical literacy um, really makes it impossible to have conversations that are rooted in biblical truth in a lot of cases. I've got a friend that calls it selective fundamentalism. And he says, you know, we take some parts of the scripture and, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, use them and don't use the other parts like the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, um, as as we look at this idea of, of grace without repentance, you know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, wonderful thinker and historic figure, he said uh, that we, we, we can end up with cheap grace if we just have grace without the reckoning and repentance that's required of us. So we got just a few minutes left, Angela, um, and your book, Red State Christians, Meet the Voters Who Elected Donald Trump, is out now. Folks can get that. Um, your last thing that you said struck me is that one of the themes of the book is hope. So let's let's mm-hmm. land there. Tell us some of the places you see hope in the middle of what can feel like a, a pretty um, daunting storm right now in our country. Thank you. Yeah, I my message, I ultimately want to be one of hope in this book. And so I talked already about um, this Southern Baptist pastor named Ariel Martinez. Um, he's a second-generation American. Um, on one side, his family is from Mexico. Um, he, His father, his brother, and his grandfather are all war veterans. Um, and one thing that he told me that I want to leave the audience with is that when we're talking about immigration, we're talking about DACA, which is um, a program to legalize children who were taken across the border illegally um, when they were young people. Uh, When we're talking about asylum seekers, we're talking about families being separated at the border. Um, In the midst of pastoring a congregation full of diverse political opinions, military members, border patrol members, um, undocumented immigrants, 
Pastor Ariel Martinez, graduate of Liberty University, Southern mm-hmm. Baptist pastor, what he said is ultimately what we need to remember is that the asylum seekers are people. Mm-hmm. And I think at the root of my book, when, when I want people to think about um, Christians and their support of Donald Trump and where we're at politically in America, um, I think we need to return to this idea that we cannot dehumanize each other any longer. Um, and there's been so much dehumanization on both sides of people involved. And so for liberals reading the book, I want them to see the human face mm. of Trump voters. Some of them may scare them. Some of them may frighten them. Some of them they may see themselves in. Um, mm. And for conservatives reading the book, I want them to to see the human face of the other side as well and see the people who are being really hurt by some of the policies of this administration. You know, we're running out Beautiful. of time. That's a, good, that's a good place to land right there. Yes. And, you know, even Donald Trump, I've heard you say, Tony, is not beyond redemption, but he needs yeah. to come to that place that we all need to come to. And we must remember what Paul writes in Timothy, that we are to pray for those who are our leaders. Uh, we don't have to approve of them, but we need to pray for them that God might bless them uh, in a way that leads them to truth. We don't want to affirm their hypocrisy we want to pray them to the throne of grace. And as we think about these, all these heavy topics, immigrants, you remind us, Angela Dinker just re- reminded us that immigrants are not just to be debated, they are to be loved, neighbors to be loved. Behind all of these issues are people with names and faces that are made in the image of God. Thanks, you all, for joining us. A great conversation with Angela Dinker. You can also find her blog at A Good Christian Woman, Not That One. So uh, it's been a great show. Join us next week at this time. This is Shane Claiborne and Tony Campolo across the pond.